Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears of my pleas for mercy. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O oh Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us and for your care. I pray that you would be with us this morning, and that as always when we come before you, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that might be soft to be molded before you so that we might, through being humbled by your love, be enabled to respond to it and then reshaped into the image of your son. So it's in your name that we pray all of this. Amen. Um, I loved being able to sit and consider Romans 8 last week. If you might recall, it's this beautiful passage that identifies things that we all feel but especially in Western culture, we can have a hard time knowing what to do with and where to go with and how to play it out. It says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with pangs of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we eagerly await and further on. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. These groanings are sometimes things that we can feel, uh, we acknowledge we feel it. We often want someone to enter into it with us, but you know how quickly when somebody says, so how are you doing? And you don't often go, oh, and groan. That would just be weird. Um, <laughs> You go, oh, fine, fine, and we move on. Or if you, if you do that thing of risking actually sharing how you're feeling, how quickly someone might be to go, ah, oh, but God's in control. And isn't it wonderful that we serve a sovereign king? And you kind of nod and you smile and you go inside, okay, well, you're not safe anymore, <laughs> and you, you move on. Um, and, and I say that because, guys, I've done those same things too. Oh, isn't it wonderful that we serve a sovereign king? Well, let's just keep smiling and let's make sure we don't show that that frown is really there too deeply and just keep up the front. And, and we know this and we talk about this, but, but we often still live in this. We don't know much of what to do with it. The author Brene Brown, and I'm not going to remember which work it was in, but she was writing and talking. She's a sociologist and researcher, and she studies the area of vulnerability. Um, and she said she wanted to study that because she wanted to kill it in her own heart, <laughs> which is fascinating. 
Um, but she said, culturally, we have lots of room for rage and we have lots of room for joy. And anytime we stand in between there, we don't really know what to do. And I think that's pretty commonly true. But by his mercy, God doesn't know what to do in those places. And his word gives us very clear time and time and time again examples of how to live out of those areas. And before we get too far into it, it's worth noting that you know, we can often think of these things uh, by thinking that lament is more of a whining at God or it's a complaining or just a grumbling. And we know all the passages about don't complain or grumble and things like that. And so we feel like we have to kind of silence ourselves in these areas. But whining and complaining and grumbling has kind of this like, uh, you might say it's, it's a foregone conclusion against God Whereas lament is, you might still be using the same words of anguish and even of confusion and even of anger, perhaps even bitterness. But it's this kind of like grappling with God that draws you closer in to say, this is what I see in your word and yet this is what my experience is and so where are you? Come show up and meet me here. So that if God were saying to you, hey, how you doing? You go, I'm not great. This is really hard. You promised me something different. Where is it? When is it? And that wonderfully bold and multiple times repeated throughout scripture cry of, how long, oh Lord, will this be? The counselor, theologian, Dan Allender, describes in an article that I'll be referencing a lot, and I've actually printed out a whole bunch of copies if you'd like to grab one in the back at the end. He describes this as, uh, it's not merely whining and grumbling to God in the midst of struggle and pain. Um, but it's the grappling with him and a moving towards him. It's the difference between being on the search for something and actually just aimlessly wandering around, um, just doing what you wanna do. And fascinatingly, it's actually included for us in his word, and as we said, it's actually designed to be even a part of our corporate and public worship such that there should be space for us to cry out together, to lament together, such that it should not be strange to when asking how someone is doing to be met with tears, or even to be said, hey, can we step aside and talk a little more deeply? Because that's part of who we're designed to be and how we're to designed to work together. So as we consider Psalm 130, it's important to know there's a pretty beautiful context to this song. If you look at the top of it, you'll see that it's delineated as a song of ascents. And so as you may or may not know, these were, uh, a, there would be a yearly progression, pilgrimage of all the people of Israel, at least those who are able, to come into the city of Jerusalem. 
And the city of Jerusalem was up on top of, that's why we talk about the holy hill. It was the high point in the land. It was a, a, a city that you could see from all kinds of other areas as you'd be walking around it and in the cities around it even. And it would be a long walk. You've got to set yourself back um, about 2,000 years in history and much more because this was written well before Christ. But then you also have to set yourself cross-culturally into a whole different context, which can be hard. And I don't mean this just in silly ways, but you have to think through like there would be no cars to be in your own individual bubble for a pilgrimage. You'd be on a highway and there might be carriages, but you're all kind of walking alongside one another. And there's no Spotify and there's no radios and there's certainly no headphones. And so whatever's happening is happening all together. And then just like us, and even us here this morning, there's all kinds of reasons that we might be here. One of the exercises I love to do with our leaders who work with the student ministry is just to pause for a moment before we begin and start thinking through, all right, why are our students here? And I think that's probably similar for why are we here right now for some because it's just what we do. For some, it's because we have a sincere desire to be in worship and we may have varying degrees of understanding of what that means. For some, it might be because our parents made us and for some of us even who are a little older, it might still be because our parents made us. Um, we could be just going through the motions and earning favor or kind of holy points with God. It might be coming just because it's nostalgia because, well, that's what I did when I was a kid and isn't it nice to be back here and maybe show my own kids some similar things. But for many of them on this same road, they're coming because they've come to the very end of themselves and they don't know where else to go. So you've got to imagine that dusty road and many of the people who are walking internally, they're crying out because they're in the midst of the trouble and the resolution and the answers doesn't seem accessible and it doesn't seem close and the pain is still there and the spouse had to be left behind and the children are being bonkers. And it's all jumbled up. And so then you can imagine in that hustle and bustle and the heat and the dust and the movement and the crowded highways, this is how the Psalms of Ascent would work. Someone would cry out the first line. And then probably 15 to 20 other voices nearby would pick up the second lines as they join in together. And then eventually, all the people in front of you and all the people behind you would start echoing back this psalm as they would go through. And so again, I want you to imagine there's all kinds of psalms. Not all of them are lament in the Psalms of Ascent. But someone cries out, out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh. And it would be common to be walking in community for this. So maybe this is someone you know, or maybe just someone you know about. And maybe you know a little bit of what's going on in their life. 
about the recent miscarriage or the battle of the long-term illness, whether physical or mental. Maybe it's those people over there that you're in broken friendship with. Maybe it's the woman crying out at another infidelity from her husband. Or the weight of injustices, whether big, seen globally throughout their whole country and world, or just in their own family and friends. We cry this out in the midst of family estrangement, in the midst of the death of a dream, crumbling marriage that might be on display and everybody knows about it, or it might just be internal and private and nobody knows about it, but it's on its last legs. So I just want you to imagine What would you be thinking in that moment when someone cries those words and then you join in? What would you be feeling? What would it mean if as you cry that out, then you hear the chorus of voices around you also crying out along with you from the depths of woe? We cry to you, O God and the dusty march to the temple. We can resonate with this even now because whether you're the people who wrote this originally or the people who sung it on the way into worship or whether you're us here who sing it together and cry it out together this morning, because of our state of sin and brokenness, we all suffer. Every religion, every philosophy, every even kind of governmental system is based around this concept of there is pain and we want to know what to do with it. And it all seeks to enter in there. Because of our state of sin and brokenness in this life, we suffer. And no matter how old, mature, young, strong, or vibrant we are, It is incredibly challenging and we are all knocked to our knees at one point or another. Now God's response to our problem in this, uh, it can be kind of frustrating if you've ever known what it means to be in this place. As we often want him to enter in with blazing lights and pain to be wiped away and evil to be rebuked and jerks to be humbled and the weak to be lifted up and it all to turn around and be changed right then and there. And it just doesn't happen. At least not often. Or rather, God's response is to meet us in the midst of this suffering. And again, to be completely honest, and I think this psalm brings us into this place, sometimes that's not what we necessarily want. What we would rather have is everything flipped ahead on its head. And if we consider and step back, that's exactly who Jesus is. What were the people expecting? Those who had made the long, dusty pilgrimage into Jerusalem year after year after year. They're looking for a mighty warrior. And yet, how did Jesus enter into Jerusalem? But on the back of a donkey. And they're looking for a king who can overthrow all the enemies and all the people who do it the wrong way and who disagree. And they can be vindicated in their own moment. 
And where does the king go? But to the cross. And we want a king that cries out, it's done, I've won, the victory is claimed. And we do have a king who cries out, it is finished. But it was from the place of the cross on the top of the hill as all of his followers say, wait, what? No. God's answer to lament is not necessarily to take us out of it, but rather to enter into it so that he is the same God who cries out on the cross to his heavenly Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So as we read this psalm, we are not reading an abstract thing. We are not reading a quick summary of how to escape pain and put a smile on when we feel lost. We are reading, I think, one of the truer expressions of the soul as we stand before our Heavenly Father and bear before Him our honesty. So the question we're going to consider is, how does this lament then actually equip us in hope? It's not a clean equipping, but it is a real one. So let's roll through these verses and consider what they model for us and what they invite us into. Uh, verses one through four. Out of the depths I cry to you, O, o Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Uh, the first thing that this does for us is acknowledge that the laments are real. This place of being in the depths of woe from just the darkness crying out to God. Well, that is a place we find ourselves. And I want to emphasize that. I know we've said this already, but I want to emphasize this even a little bit further because, again, sometimes, unfortunately, it's said explicitly, but whether it's just explicit or implicit, we as the people of God can presume that our, our experience should just be it's all okay and it's all getting better. And the more faith that I have, the more beautiful things are becoming. And I just want to tell you, it's okay that that's not your reality. And it's okay that sometimes your faith actually leads you into deeper sorrow. And that's not a surprise. It's to be expected. It's part of what we face and it's why God cares for us as he does. It's why he draws alongside us. It's why he brings us a savior because otherwise we wouldn't need it. It is no surprise to him and it should be no surprise to us and so don't hold back. Enter in with the psalmist and be willing to face your depths and cry out to the Lord. And yes, of course, this is the big things, but then you know all the little things and how many times do we say to one another and say to ourselves even, well, somebody else has it worse and so we just push it down. But this psalm brings us freedom saying, no, don't push it down. Face it, name it, let it bubble to the surface. Cry out to our Heavenly Father with exactly the depths that we feel. Um, there is this moment, uh, 
many of these moments, honestly, even just in my own family with Lindsay and I as we love our kids and as we struggle in what it means to be a parent and as we're caught up in the midst of trying to parent them well but then also shepherd our own hearts well as we're struggling and as we're in these really challenging moments of struggle. And one evening as we were just sitting and processing together and Lindsay and I have talked about this, she, she cleared that we can share this story. Yes. Um, but as she's rolling through these struggles, and they're real struggles, we were able to speak together and to one another and as she was rolling out how she was feeling, I paused her and I said, babe, I feel so honored that you're bringing these things to me, but also it sounds like you really need to be bringing this like, to God as this complaint of how do I endure? How do I stand? How do I maintain my own character? And that's not just Lindsay who does that, of course, like, I do that too, and I have to bring that to the Heavenly Father all the time, because we all do. And yet sometimes we wanna clean ourselves up before we come back to God. But when we're stuck between our circumstances and God's character, we will turn toward one or the other. But brothers and sisters, God's character is strong, and it is deep, and he can handle your depths. And not only can he handle them, but he invites them. And he wants to know them, and he wants to know them with you. For the grandparents and the aunts and the uncles and the good friends and the parents who have ever had a small child run to them in the midst of sadness and just throw their arms around them, what you want in that moment is not for the child to say, no, no, I got it, hang on. I'll pull it together. What you want is that child to wrap their arms around you so that you can hold them back and say, tell me about it. You sound so sad, I love you, I've got you. And similarly, this place of lament is a running to God. Now, sometimes it is a wrestling with him, but nonetheless, it is the clinging to him and saying, help me, I am hurt, I need something bigger than me, I am not enough, where are you? I'm afraid, come near me. And we can do that because that's who the Lord is. Lament is the expression of and search for hope with the God who claims to bring it to us. The turn of the 19th, 20th century theologian P.T. Forsyth says in The Cure of Souls that our depths are simply God's heights inverted. God is holier than our deepest sin is deep. There is no depth so deep to us as when God reveals his holiness in dealing with our own sin. And so whenever you might think that your brokenness, your sin, your darkness would be an obstacle, he says, think more of the depth of God than the depth of your cry. And that's not to minimize the depth of your cry, that's to acknowledge once again that he is the rock who is higher than we are. He is the foundation that we can get to. His de the heights of his glory are deeper than the depths of our sin. And so anything that we might think would throw up a hindrance between us and him, well, that's how deep his glory goes. And that's how boldly we can lean on him. Verse four outlines it, saying that 
No, but with you, there is forgiveness. And I just want to remind you, that doesn't mean you have to have it all right. And even perhaps the depths of your sin, the depths of your woe, the depths that you're crying out to God from, maybe, maybe they're your fault. But that's okay. In fact, that's one of the most important reasons to come to him. That's not a hindrance to block and to hold you back, but that's the very moment of mercy where God says, yes, I know, and I love you. And in Jesus Christ, I have provided for you. I know you can't bear this weight. That's why I came in the person of Jesus, to bear all the weight of the sins that you cannot, to bring you back home once again to me and to my love. It's the cry of Peter, whom after Jesus has intentionally scared the hangers-on away with fantastically hard teachings about his death. And he looks to his disciples and he says, are you too going to leave me? And Peter looks back in this beautiful broken confession and kind of says, well, yeah, maybe I would, except where else would I go? And there's such beauty in that collection. Um, just again to identify the character of who God is. If you know the story of Israel, there are 400 years plus of enslavement in Egypt. God summarizes his relationship with them and their cry out for deliverance from their bondage and enslavement by saying in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned. You remember that groaning? The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What does it mean to us to have a God who hears you in the midst of your groanings? A God who remembers his covenant love for you in the midst of your groanings. A God who sees you in the midst of your groanings. And a God who knows what it is to groan himself. He's the God who hears and we can bring our lament to him. If we look further on in verses five through six, we see this waiting and watching. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Waiting is an extremely hard thing to do. And trusting that the light is coming is very different than saying that the morning has already dawned. It's an acknowledgement that I am yet still in the midst of the darkness. The woe is yet around me. And there is no dawn that has broken. And yet waiting in the darkness is also an act of hope. Because the darkness says to you, despair, there is no more light. But when we lament, when we lament to the Lord, we're doing one of the most powerful acts of rebellion that human beings can possibly do because we sit in that darkness and we say, yeah, I have no idea how I'm gonna make it through. And yet, and yet, 
I believe God is real. And it's even that cry to God to say, I am in the darkness and I don't see your light and yet show up. Please answer me. Come meet me. The same P.T. Forsyth said the worst thing that can happen to a person is to have no God to cry out to out of the darkness. And so even as we watch and as we wait, as we are in that tension, we are not in a tension as those who have no hope. But we wait knowing the character of God himself. Brene Brown, who I mentioned before, says in another one of her books, who I couldn't find the reference for except just the quote, she says that looking into the darkness is actually one of the greatest acts of vulnerability and hope. She says, no one reaches out to you for compassion or empathy so that you can teach them how to behave better. They reach out to us because they believe in our capacity to know our darkness well enough to sit in the darkness with them. Lament acknowledges God's character even before we know God's answer. Lament puts us before God's goodness even before we see it on display. Lament, trust God's strength even before we see it played out. And that's what the next section leads us into, verses seven and eight, where it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for in the, with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And I just want you to see, it's not saying that it's come already. It's not saying that it's going to meet you in exactly the ways that you would like. It's just saying, where is it? Well, it's with this guy. It's not promising that it's going to come right around the next corner. It's just saying, what is our source? It is with him. Do you see it yet? Well, maybe not me either, but I know it is with him. And with him, we can put our trust. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, and with the, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And I want you to look at this too. It doesn't say, and he will give Israel everything that he wants. And he will give Israel all the answers to all the questions. What does he say? He says, and he will redeem Israel from all of Israel's iniquities. He brings us back in saying, no matter what your circumstances are, whether they change, and we should cry out to him that they will, or whether our circumstances don't change, and perhaps they will not, Nonetheless, our hope stands in the God who has promised that in all things, in all things, he is with us. And he stands alongside us. Plentiful redemption. You are not on probation. You can't use it up. Go ahead and cause yourself more woe. Because God will be there with you in the midst of that. Stand firm and face the darker, dreaded diagnosis because God can stand with you in the midst of even that. You see, the story here is a microcosm of our story. God enters into our story and cries out along with us, but in the same moment, he then brings us into his story where our hope is not on my own strength, my own health, my own happiness, my own resolution, 
but my hope is in the fact that God has been working out his redemption from the very beginning to the very end, and whether I meet it now or not, I know that my heart can stand firmly in him, and so I can bring to him my cries, and I can bring to him my frustration, and I can bring to him my woe. Because in his provision for me in Christ Jesus, I know in the grand story of redemption, I can stand not as a far off person, but as his son and his daughter whose cries he hears every single time. I can stand before him in the midst of my iniquities because I can look to the person of Jesus Christ who lived the ways that I could never live, who faced darker woe than I have ever experienced, and who said, yeah, I will pay all of this on your behalf. I can watch and I can wait with hope because we know that Jesus has already come and we can trust the promises that he is coming once again. And we can fix our eyes on this steadfast redemption because he has fixed his eyes already on us in the midst of our woe, in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our lament. And he said, I have paid it all and I will bring you home. It's again this article that I would commend to to you that I have available in the back. Um, Dan Allender, the counselor theologian, says, The cry of lament is never answered. It is confounded. God does not rationalize. He does not stoop to answer. He responds by wailing in the pangs of childbirth, crying, gasping, panting. He cries out through his son, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the Old Testament is filled with lament, psalms, prophetic literature, the book of Lamentations itself. But the New Testament is filled even more loudly with this one lament, the cry of God in anguish, a God of such wrath and such mercy and such passion for his glory and our reconciliation that he is willing to go to the most incomprehensible lengths to win us to his heart. Lament softens the hardness of false piety and arrogant unbelief, intensifies our search, and puts us before the face of Jesus' inconceivable cry. And so what do we do with this? Well, brothers and sisters, we lament, and we lament boldly And then we wait and we watch. And then we put our hope in Yahweh's deliverance, in Jesus' redemption, in God's care for us and equipping through the Holy Spirit. So if I may be so bold, we're gonna do a little bit of that this morning. I'm gonna give us just a moment If you look on the sides of your pews, there's a bunch of little like three by five or three by five-ish sized cards. I'd invite you to grab one and just take a moment and write down some of your laments. You can fold it over and crumple it up or burn it later so nobody else has to see it. Or maybe, or maybe, maybe you can share it with someone. Maybe you could bring it to one of the elders or one of the pastors or just someone who loves you and cry out with them. I'm going to roll through a number of things that we can lament even just as a church. 
And then I'll invite you to stand and we'll read Psalm 130 together. So sorry to my slide crew if that puts you in a moment of improvisation to pull those up. Um, But take a moment and consider. At EP, I think we can lament things from a long time ago. We can lament the loss of pastors. We can lament the failures that cost us the loss of those pastors. We can lament the loss of various staff members. We can lament the lack of clarity with which, though we have strived to serve well, that sometimes we, your leaders, stumble. Honestly, brothers and sisters, we can lament the wounds that we have caused in our clumsiness and in our leadership. We can lament the people who we miss sitting in these pews with us and their loss. We can lament the loss of the generations of those who have come before us whom we still miss. We can lament the different ways we've experienced even congregational division and suspicion and fighting. We can lament the ways that our heart is quick to believe the darkness rather than to believe the delight. So I give you just a moment more to consider, to write a few things down, to open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 130. if you are able, if you would stand as well. And as we read this together, let us fix the eyes of our hearts on Jesus Christ, the one who has purchased our ability to lament, the one who is for whom we watch and wait, and the one whose steadfast love leads us into redemptive life yet again. So all together, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can stand on this side of the cross and see the ways that you have provided for us our suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. 
who can confess and lament in all the ways that our hearts don't even know how. And then who then re- rebuilds us mercifully by your love so that in that place of lament, even there we might build our trust and our confidence and our hope in you. Lord, sustain us as we stumble along the way. And Lord, strengthen us so that we might stand, not by our own efforts, but once again, fixing our eyes on you and your Son by your Holy Spirit, that we might boldly follow you nonetheless, even as we limp in these moments of groaning and lament. And it is by your name that we pray these things. Amen. Come be-